Section 21 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2, by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 11. Under Escort to Herat. Part two. The rising sun ushers in May Day with unmistakable indications of his growing powers, and when he glares fiercely over the walls of our little orchard retreat, we find it profitable to crouch in the shade. It is already evident that I am not to be permitted to enter Herat proper, or see or learn any more of my surroundings than my keepers can help. Letters are forwarded to the city immediately upon our arrival, and on the following morning an officer and several soldiers make their appearance, to receive me from Kiftan Sahib, and duly receipt for my transfer. The officer announces himself as having once been to Bombay, and proceeds to question me in a mixture of Persian and Hindustani. Finding me ignorant of the latter language, he openly accuses me of being a Russian raising his finger and wagging his head in a deprecatory manner. He is a simple-minded individual, however, and open to easy conviction, and, moreover, inclined to be amiable and courteous. He tells me that Faramors Khan is Wall of the Soldiers, and Niab Alukima Khan the Daule, civil governor and after listening to my explanation of being english and not russian he takes upon himself to deliver salams from them both merg sahib the political agent of the boundary commission he says is at murgab and ridgeway sahib at maimini learning that a courier is to be sent at once to them with letters in regard to myself i quickly embrace the opportunity of sending a letter to each by the same messenger explaining the situation and asking colonel ridgeway to try and render me some assistance in getting through to india by request of the officer i send the governor of herat a sketch of the bicycle to enlighten him somewhat concerning its character and appearance no doubt it would be a stretching of his asiatic dignity as the governor of an important city to come to rosebaugh on purpose to see it for himself and on no circumstances can i an unauthorized ferengi invading the country against orders be permitted to visit herat the transfer having been duly made i am conducted a mile or so to the garden of a gentleman named mohammed azin khan my quarters there being an open bungalow, just large enough to stretch out in. Here is provided everything necessary for the rude personal comfort of the country, and such additional luxuries as raisins and pomegranates are at once brought. Here, also, I very promptly make the acquaintance of Moore's famous bulbuls, the sweet nightingales of Lala Iuk, the garden is full of fruit trees and grapevines, and here several pairs of bulbuls make their home. They are great pets with the Afghans, and when Mohammed Azim Khan calls bulbul, bulbul, they come and alight on the bushes close by the bungalow and perk their heads knowingly, evidently expecting to be favored with tidbits. They are almost tame enough to take raisins out of the hand, and hesitate not to venture after them when placed close to our feet. It is the first time I have had the opportunity of a close examination of the bull-bull, 
They are almost the counterpart of the English starling as regards size and shape, but their bodies are of a mousy hue. The head and throat are black, with little white patches on either cheek. The tail feathers are black, tipped with white, and on the lower part of the body is a patch of yellow. The feathers of the head form a crest that almost rises to the dignity of a tassel. While the bulbul is a companionable little fellow, and possessed of a cheery voice, his warble in no respects resembles the charming singing of the nightingale. And why he should be mentioned in connection with the sweet midnight songster of the English woodlands is something of a mystery. His song is a mere clickety-click, repeated rapidly several times. His popularity comes chiefly from his boldness and his companionable associations with mankind. The bulbul is as much of a favorite in the Herat Valley as is Robin Redbreast in rural England, or the Bobolink in America. The second day in the garden is remembered as the anniversary of my start from Liverpool, and I have plenty of time for retrospection. It is unnecessary to say that the year has been crowded with strange experiences. Not the least strange of all, perhaps, is my present predicament as a prisoner in the Herat Valley. In the afternoon there arrives from Herat a Peshawari gentleman named Mirza Golam Ahmed, who is stationed here in the capacity of native agent for the Indian government. He is an individual possessed of considerable Asiatic astuteness, and his particular mission is very plainly to discover for the governor of Herat whether I am English or Russian. He is a somewhat fleshy, well-favored person, and withal of prepossessing manners. He introduces himself by shaking hands and telling me his name, and forthwith indulges in a pinch of snuff preparatory to his task of interrogation. Accompanying him is the officer who received me from Kiftan Sahib in the apricot garden, and whose suspicions of my being a Russian spy are anything but allayed. During the interview he squats down on the threshold of the little bungalow and concentrates his curiosity and suspicion into a protracted penetrating stare, focused steadily at my devoted countenance. Mohammed Azim Khan imitates him to perfection, except that his stare contains more curiosity and less suspicion. Mirza Golam Ahmed proceeds upon his mission of fathoming the secret of my nationality with extreme wariness as becomes an oriental official engaged in a task of significant import and at first confines himself to the use of persian and hindustani it does not take me long however to satisfy the trustworthy old peshawari that i am not a moscow and fifteen minutes after his preliminary pinch of snuff he is unbosoming himself to me to the extent of letting me know that he served with general pollock on the seistan boundary commission that he went with general pollock to london and moreover rejoices in the titular distinction of c i e companion indian empire bestowed upon him for long and faithful civil and political services the c i e he designates with a pardonable smile of self-approval as bakshish given him without solicitation by the government of india a circumstance that probably appeals to his oriental conception as a most extraordinary feature in his favor. Bribery, favoritism, and personal influence enter so largely into the preferments and rewards of oriental governments that anything obtained on purely meritorious grounds may well be valued highly. 
he understands English sufficiently well to comprehend the meaning of my remarks and queries, and even knows a few words himself. From him I learn that I will not be permitted to visit Herat, and that I am to be kept under guard until Faramore's Khan's courier returns from the Boundary Commission camp with Colonel Ridgway's answer. He tells me that the fame of the bicycle has long ago been brought to Herat by pilgrims returning from Meshed, and the marvelous stories of my accomplishments are current in the bazaars. Fourteen farsaks, fifty-six miles an hour, and nothing said about the condition of the roads is the average Herati's understanding of it, and many a grave, turbaned merchant in the bazaar and wild warrior on the ramparts indulges in daydreams of an iron horse little less miraculous in its deeds than the winged steed of the air we read of in the Arabian Nights. The direct results of Mirza Golam Ahmed's visit and favorable report to the governor of Herat are made manifest on the following day by the appearance of his companion of yesterday in charge of two attendants, bringing me boxes of sweetmeats, almonds, raisins, and salted nuts, together with a package of tea and a fifteen-pound cone of loaf sugar, all bakshish from the governor of Herat. Mirza Golam Ahmed himself contributes a cake of toilet soap, a few envelopes and sheets of paper, and Huntley and Palmer's beading biscuits. Upon stumbling upon these latter acceptable articles, one naturally falls to wonder whether this world-famed firm of biscuit-makers suspect that their wares sometimes penetrate even inside the battlemented walls of Herat. With them come also three gunsmiths, charged with the duty of assisting in the preparation of the bicycle, badly damaged by the horse, it is remembered, on the way from Furrah. Their implements consist of a pair of peculiar goatskin bellows provided with wooden nozzles tipped with iron, a catgut bowstring, drills for boring holes, and screw drills for cutting threads, hammers, and an anvil. A rude but ingenious forge is constructed out of a few handfuls of stiff mud, and, building a charcoal fire, they spend the evening in sharpening and tempering drills for tomorrow's operations. Everybody seems more attentive and anxious to contribute to my pleasure, the result, evidently, of orders from Herat. The officer, who but two days ago openly accused me of being a Russian, is today obsequious beyond measure and his efforts to atone for ma openly assured his suspicions are really quite painful and embarrassing even going the length of begging me to take him with me to london the supper provided to-day consists of more courses and is better cooked and better served mohammed azim khan himself squats before me diligently engaged in picking hairs out of the butter pointing out what he considers the choicest morsels and otherwise betrays great anxiety to do the agreeable the whole of the fifth and sixth days are consumed in the task of repairing the damages to the bicycle the result being highly satisfactory considering everything six new spokes that i have with me have been inserted and sundry others stretched and the ends newly threaded the gunsmiths are quite expert workmen considering the tools they have to work with and when they happen to drill a hole a trifle crooked they are full of apologies and remind me that this is afghanistan and not frangistan they know and appreciate good material when they see it and during the process of heating and stretching the spokes loud and profuse are the praises bestowed upon the quality of the iron 
Kub Alhan, they say, Kali Kub Alhan, Ferengi Alhan Kub. As artisans, interested in mechanical affairs, the ball bearings of the petals, one of which I take apart to show them, excites their profound admiration as evidence of the marvelous skill of the Ferengis. Much careful work is required to spring the rim of the wheel back into a true circle, every spoke having to be loosened and the whole wheel newly adjusted. Except for the handy little spoke vice, which I very fortunately brought with me, this work of adjustment would have been impossible as there is probably nothing obtainable in herat that would have answered the purpose no alternative would have been left but to have carried the bicycle out of the country on horseback after the coterie of gunsmiths have exhausted their ingenuity and my own resources have been expended three spokes are missing entirely two others are stretched and weakened and of the six new ones some are forced into holes partially spoiled in the unskilled boring out of broken ends yet with all these defects so thoroughly has it stood the severest tests of the roads that i apprehend little or no trouble about breakages day after day passes wearily along wearily notwithstanding the kindly efforts of my guardians to make things pleasant and comfortable from an asiatic's standpoint nothing could be more desirable than my present circumstances with nothing to do but lay around and be waited on generous meals three times daily sweetmeats to nibble and tea to drink the whole livelong day conscious of requiring rest and generous diet all this however is anything but satisfactory in view of the reflection that the fine spring weather is rapidly passing away and that every day ought to see me forty or fifty miles nearer the pacific coast time hangs heavily in the absence of occupation and i endeavor to relieve the tedium of slowly creeping time by cultivating the friendship of our new-found acquaintances the bulbuls my bountiful supply of raisins provides the elements of a genuine bond of sympathy between us and places us on the most friendly terms imaginable from the beginning during the day, my bungalow is infested with swarms of huge robber ants that make a most determined onslaught on the raisins and sweetmeats, invading the boxes and lugging them off to their haunts among the grapevines. A favorite occupation of the bulbuls is sitting on a twig just outside the bungalow and watching for the appearance of these ants dragging away raisins. The bulbul hops to the ground, seizes the raisin, shakes the ant loose, flies back up in his tree and swallows the captured raisin and immediately perks his head in search of another prize among other ideas intended to contribute to my enjoyment a loud-voiced peewit imprisoned in a crape cage is brought and hung up outside the bungalow at intervals that seem almost as regular as the striking of a clock this interesting pet stretches itself up at full length and gives utterance to a succession of rasping cries strangely loud for so small a creature a horse is likewise brought into the garden for the pleasure it will presumably afford me to watch it munch bunches of pulled grass and switch horse-flies away with his tail the horse is tied up about twenty yards from my quarters but in his laudable zeal to cater to my amusement mohammed azim khan volunteers to station it close by if more agreeable all these trifling occurrences serve to illustrate the asiatic's idea of personal enjoyment every day a subordinate called abdur rahman khan rides into herat to report to the governor 
and Mohammed Azim Khan himself keeps watch and ward over my person with faithful vigil. Sometimes I wander about the little garden for exercise, and either he or one of his assistants follows close behind, faithful in their attendance as a shadow. Occasionally I grow careless and indifferent about possible danger, and leave my revolver hanging up in the bungalow. Noticing its absence, he bids me buckle it around me, saying warningly, Afghanistan, Afghanistan. He also watches me retire at night to make sure that I put it under my pillow. One day a visitor appears upon the scene, carrying a walking cane. Mohammed Azim Khan pounces upon him instantly, and I, grabbing the stick, examines it closely, evidently suspicious lest it should be a sword stick. He is the most persistent gazer I have yet met in Asia. Hour after hour he squats on his hams at my feet and stares intently into my face as though trying hard to read my inmost thoughts. Oriental-like, he is fascinated by the mystery of my appearance here, and there is no such thing as shaking off his silent, wondering gaze for a minute. He is on hand promptly in the morning to watch my rude, matinual toilet, and he always watches me retire for the night. Even when I betake myself to a retired part of the garden in the dusk of evening to take a sluice bath with a bucket of water, his white-robed figure is always loitering near. Four men are stationed about my bungalow at night. Their respective armaments vary from a Martini Henry rifle attached to a picturesque Asiatic stock owned by Abdur Rahman Khan to an immense knobbed cudgel wielded by a titleless youth named Osman. Osman's sole wardrobe consists of a coarse nightshirt style of garment that in the early part of its career was probably white but which is now neither white nor equal to the task of protecting him from the penetrating rays of the summer sun. His occupation appears to be that of all-around utility man for whomsoever cares to order him about. Osman has to bring water and pour it on my hands whenever I want to wash, hie him away to the bazaar to search for dates or anything my epicurean taste demands in addition to what is provided, feed the horse, change the position of the peewit to keep it in the shade, sweep out my bungalow, and perform all sorts of menial offices. Every noble loafer about my person seems anxious to have Osman continually employed in contributing to my comfort. Mohammed Azim Khan even deprecates the independence displayed in lacing up my own shoes. Osman, he says, let Osman do it. Osman's chief characteristic is a reckless disregard for the conventionalities of social life and religion. He never seems to bother himself about either washing his person or saying his prayers. Somewhere, not far away, every evening the faithful are summoned to prayer by a muezzin with the most musical and pathetic voice I have heard in all Islam. The voice of this muezzin, calling Allah, il Allah, as it comes floating over the houses and gardens in the calm silence of the summer evenings, is wonderfully impressive. From the pulpits of all Christendom, I have yet to hear an utterance so full of pathos and supplication, or that carries with it the impressions of such deep sincerity as the Allah il Allah of this Afghan muezzin in the Herat Valley. It is a supplication to the throne of grace that rings in my ears even as I write, 
months after, and it touches the hearts of every Afghan within hearing and taps the fountain of their piety like magic. It calls forth responsive prayers and pious sighings from everybody around my bungalow, everybody except Osman. Osman can scarcely be called imperturbable, for he has his daily and hourly moods, and is of varying temper, but he carries himself always as though conscious of being an outcast, whom nothing can either elevate or defile. When his fellow Mussulmans are piously prostrating themselves, and uttering religious sighs, sincere as fanaticism can make them, Osman is either curled up beneath a pomegranate bush asleep, feeding the horse, or attending to the peewit. Observing this, I often wonder whether he is considered, or considers himself, too small a potato in this world to hope for any attention from the prophet in the next. The paradise of the Mohammedans, its shady groves, marble fountains, walled gardens, and cool retreats, its karagus kiz, and wealth of material pleasures, no doubt seem to poor Osman, with his one tattered garment and unhappy servility, far beyond the aspirations of such as he. Like the gutter-snipe of London or New York, who gazes into the brilliant shop-windows, he feels privileged to feast his imagination, perchance, but that is all. Big bouquets of roses are gathered for me every morning, and when the store in our own little garden is exhausted, they are procured from somewhere else. The efforts of those about me to render my forced detention as pleasant as possible is very gratifying, and all the time I am buoyed up by the hope that the boundary commissioners will be able to do something to help me get through to India. The boundary commission camp is stationed over two hundred miles from Herat. Eight days roll wearily by, and my movements are still carefully confined to the little garden, and my person attended by guards day and night. Every day I amuse myself with giving raisins to the robber ants, for the sake of seeing the ever-watchful bulbuls pounce upon them and rob them. Morning and evening the imprisoned peewit awakens the echoes with his ratchety call, and every sunset is commemorated by the sincerely plaintive utterances of the muezzin mentioned above. Thus the days of my detention pass away, until the ninth day after my arrival here. On the evening of May 8th, the officer who first interviewed me in the apricot orchard comes to my bungalow, and brings salams from Faramors Khan. He and Mohammed Azim Khan, after a brief discussion between themselves, commence telling me, in the same roundabout manner as the blue-gowned Khan at Fura, that the Amir at Kabul has no control over the fanatical nomads of Zemindavar. Mohammed Azim Khan draws his finger across his throat, and the officer repeats, Afghan Badmash, 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 Desperado. This parrot-like repetition is uttered in accents so pleaful, and is, withal, accompanied by such a searching stare into my face, that its comicality for the minute overcomes any sense of disappointment at the fall of my hopes. For my experience at Fura teaches me that this is really the object of their visit. Another ingenious argument of these polite and, after a certain childish fashion, astute Asiatics is a direct appeal to my magnanimity. We know you are brave, and to accomplish your object would even allow the Gilzays to cut your throat. 
but the wali begs you to sacrifice yourself for the reputation of his country by keeping out of danger they plead if you get killed afghanistan will get a bad name they are in dead earnest about converting me by argument and pleadings to their view of the case i point out that so far as the reputation of afghanistan is concerned there can be little difference between forbidding travelers to go through for fear of their getting murdered and their actual killing i remind them too that i am a nakshi and can let the people of frangistan understand this if i am turned back these arguments of course avail me nothing the upshot of instructions received from the boundary commission camp is that i am to be conducted at once back into persia horses have to be shod and all sorts of preparations made next morning and it is near about noon before we are ready to start our destination is the persian frontier village of kariz about one hundred miles to the west everything is finally ready when it transpires that Mohammed Azim Khan's orders are to put me on a horse and carry the bicycle on another. This program I utterly refuse to sanction, knowing only too well what the result is likely to be to the bicycle. In defense of the arrangement, Mohammed Azim Khan argues that as the bicycle goes fourteen farsakhs an hour, the horses will not be able to keep up and strict orders are issued from herat that i am not to separate myself from my escort while on afghan territory off posts abdur kaman khan hot haste to herat to report the difficulty to the governor while we return to the garden it being too late in the day when he returns our departure is postponed till morning and osman with his knob stick performs the office of nocturnal guard yet once again during the evening, Mohammed Azim Khan unearths from somewhere a couple of photographs of English ladies. These, he tells me, came into his possession from one of Ayub Khan's fugitive warriors after their dispersion in the Herat Valley, on their flight before General Roberts' command at Kandahar. They were among the effects gathered up by Ayub Khan's plundering crew from the disastrous field of Maywand. End of section 21. Recording by William Tomko.